Today we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter. I've been in James for several weeks, but we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter, the very book right after James. Uh, if you want to find that uh, in, the, in the pew rack in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, and, uh, and you can find that on page, let me go ahead and find it for you, uh, page 953 if you're using the pew uh, Bible. Only one verse today I want to focus on, and I think it's a verse that will just encourage every one of us. You know, we find ourselves in different seasons of life, different times in our life where, where things are fantastic. I mean, everything's just going great, and we're celebrating all kinds of things. You know, from the birth of a baby, which we just had one in our church yesterday, the Dooley family uh, welcomed Olivia uh, into their uh, household, and so we're, we're thankful for them. Uh, we've got graduations coming up. We celebrate these things, uh, uh, proposals, you know, wedding proposals, which took place this past week as well, and, uh, and a wedding to come, anniversaries. There are so many things that, that capture our attention and, and just raise us up to celebrate. I wish all of life could be like that, don't you? Where every day it's just an exciting day, it's a new opportunity where we just grab a hold of it. But the truth is, life is not always like that. Sin entered our world and we struggle and we fight and we, we have disappointments and, and, and grief and loss and separation and we battle depression and there are so much uncertainty. Life is filled with celebrations, but life is filled with uncertainty and, and tragedy. In a letter to a law partner, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, wrote these words. Because he was having this, this kind of difficult season. He says, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole of human race, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be any better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode that I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it seems to me. You ever felt that way? The weight of the world and the tragedies and the difficulties on you, just you cannot work through. You cannot foresee anything better. We all go through a dark night of the soul when life overwhelms us with pain and tragedy and grief. I believe the disciples were experiencing that as they saw Jesus, who they were following for several years, crucified on that cross. Peter was having such a, a difficult time in his own soul as, as the friend that he followed, he now had denied three times and he had been crucified. And Peter's own heart was shattered. The hope was gone. He must have been thinking back to those days when he writes this letter of 1 Peter. When all hope seemed lost. When his own fear made him deny the very Christ that he said he believed in. And so he writes this letter after the resurrection to give hope, to give certainty, to give a perspective that though we don't always see the bright light, we need to know that it is there. I want you to follow along with me in 1 Peter where he opens this, this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are 
elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see here that early on they are being dispersed. The persecution had taken place in Jerusalem and people are scattering every which way to to avoid the the persecution and to avoid the, the murdering of believers following Christ. They're being dispersed everywhere, but even in God's divine plan, the word dispersion literally means to be spread like a seed. What God was doing, Jesus had promised to them when he says, I'm going to go away, but you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Well, upon hearing that great commission, they didn't pack their bags preparing to go. They were just hungering down in Jerusalem. But God allowed the persecution... So they would actually take the message everywhere to spread the seed of the gospel that people needed to know. They would transform their lives so they're being separated and and spread out here, scattered. But you notice in verse 2 there is a sanctification process taking place. They're growing in faith according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is in them, with them, leading them, guiding them that they would obey Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. And you notice here that they are well supplied, multiplied hundredfold. My grace and my peace is with them. The grace of God that Peter is proclaiming. And in here you see now, he leads that, that perspective. You're being scattered. You're being sanctified. You're certainly supplied. What is the message? What is the hope? What is the certainty you have? You don't know when your life's going to end. You don't know when the next persecution will come. You don't know when, the next time one of our fellow believers will be taken to prison or put uh, in the lion's den. You don't know what's going to happen, but what is the certainty that will keep you hopeful? Verse 3 is as far as I'm going to go today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, abundant mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The most significant time of all of history was the death of Christ. And then he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering Satan, conquering sin, to give you a living hope for all time. Today I want to just show you in verse 3 alone four certainties that you can have to have hope and no, no matter what the situation no matter where you are in life. Some of you are, are, have been following Christ but still struggle and, and have difficulties. Perhaps you've not lost faith in Him, but you've lost faith in the church. You've lost faith in life and society and culture. Is God still actively involved in our world? Absolutely. But you're not seeing it right now. I want you to hear with the faith ears you've been giving what Peter is saying to the church here. For some of you, you've been struggling along the way and not certain what if your faith in Christ is sufficient. 
Well, let me tell you, the faith that you have may be small as a mustard seed, but God is more than sufficient. And for some of you, you've never really trusted Jesus. You've heard about him, or perhaps you, 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 you've Google searched around uh, the, the thought of Jesus, and what does that mean to follow him? But you've never surrendered your life because you're uncertain of what will take place, or even if he is real or loves you. I want you to find in this passage four certainties for you today. The first is this. With Jesus, we have a great mercy. You see it in the text? Great or abundant, depending on the translation you're using, according to his great mercy. Well, what is mercy and why is it needed? I like what Warren Wearsby said, a pastor of another generation. He said, grace is what God gives me that I don't deserve. Like a, a great gift. I didn't earn it. I, I just receive it. But mercy is what God doesn't give me that I do deserve. If you've ever been in trouble, you ran a red light and you thought there was a camera there that took your picture. If, uh, if you've ever done something, you, you, you took the cookie out of the cookie jar and mama said, don't touch it. You know, if you've ever done something wrong at work and you thought, oh, I'm about to get caught, and maybe you did, and the, you deserve something greater of, of condemnation or discipline or, or a ticket or whatever it may be, and you don't receive it. That grace was extended to you and actually mercy. You did not receive what you deserved. They withheld the punishment that you rightly deserved. When it says here, and it opens up the salvation passage here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to great mercy, which indicates we deserve something for our sin. We deserve something for our life, the way we think, the way we act, apart from how we were created. In a sense, God designed us to worship and, and surrender to him and, and, and totally trust him. But here, it's indicating Jesus died for a reason. Because sin was prevalent and sin was not only a part of my life, it was a part of every person who's ever been born. And so the first step of, of God taking the cross was that he was extending mercy. You deserve the wrath of God. You deserve to be on the cross. But out of his great mercy, he's going to withhold the punishment from you when you trust in the Lord who took that punishment for you. We never forget, never forget that it truly, it wasn't the Jews that put Jesus on the cross. Neither was it the Romans. Certainly they were physically involved. But listen to these words. It was the will of the Father to send Jesus to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life without sin, and take that cross. It was prophesied even in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, that Jesus would be the sacrifice. And God's will was to crush him for our sin and iniquities. This passage describes God's abundant mercy Mercy is the compassionate treatment for those who don't deserve it, could never earn it, never could afford it. How essential is mercy? Two men who were blind in the New Testament cried out, Have mercy on us, O Lord! The Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Ten lepers who were uh, uh, ostracized from the community in Luke 17 cried, Lord, Master, have mercy on us. 
the tax collector in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mercy is granted to those who recognize they need God's mercy. Will you withhold what I deserve and grant me what I don't deserve? This is why Jesus came. This is what we celebrate a resurrected Lord for because of what he has done. Have you ever cried out to God for mercy? Someone once said, our prayer and God's mercy are like two buckets in a well. While one ascends, our prayer ascends, his mercy descends and is granted to us. Mercy and forgiveness are found only and completely in Jesus Christ. There are some who feel that you can lose your salvation once you have it. Let me address that just briefly. They say, well, we jump in to salvation, but when, with our life we jump out of it. Well, whether you can lose your salvation or not depends on how you received it. If you believe you are saved by your good actions, certainly you will lose that salvation based on your bad actions. But that's not true salvation. If you received your salvation by God's grace and mercy, then you've been saved and secured. You didn't earn it. You didn't uh, uh, get it because of something you've done. You've received it because of mercy and grace through the death of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are or where you have been or what you've done, God is granting to you great mercy will you receive it. The second thing I want you to see in the text is this. It doesn't just stop with great mercy and oh, how we all need it. With Jesus, we have a new birth. We receive His mercy, meaning we didn't receive the the just punishment that we deserved. We're getting His grace. But it says here, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. New birth. He has caused us to be born again. There was a famous painter who had set up an easel in a local park and uh, started painting a picture he was titling Life. As he looked around to to, uh, the pigeons, he was painting them. The blooming tulips in the area, he was painting them. People walking on a path, how beautiful it was. Something had distracted him, and he messed up and marred the painting. He had turned and hit something that he did not want to do, and it just became less than what his hope and desire was for his painting. And he looked at this painting and he said to himself, quote, I must start over with a new life. So he took out another canvas and started life all over again. Here's the problem. All of us have been painting our own life since we were born. And it's a mess. When we look at what God's design is for us, and we realize... We need a new life. God wipes that when he puts a whole new canvas up. He says, now let me paint the beautiful picture of what I desire for you. And you will find pleasure in what I am preparing. There is hope in Christ alone. Rather than taking the the reins, taking the paintbrush, I'm going to do it my way. Let us allow Jesus Christ 
to give us new life, new birth, to be born again. Jesus is our creator. He's our savior. He gives us a new life, which is called to be born again. Jesus was explaining this to to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he explained, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, the physical life. Certainly, we've all had that experience. And I hope that every one of us in this room are pro-life since you and I used to be fetuses. And and by God's grace, we were allowed to be physically born. But then he goes on, he says, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There is a spiritual life that is born by the Spirit of God as he awakens your heart and mind to receive from him the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is offered, allowing us to be born again to have a brand new life. I love that God, when he grabs a hold of someone, gives you a new life. He gives you a whole new direction. It it truly is transformative. No matter where you've been, God is doing something in you when you fully surrender. Down in Atlanta, where Jennifer and I moved from, and our children just a couple of years ago, in Atlanta, every Wednesday night downtown, Joe uh, McCutcheon preaches the gospel in a ministry called Safe House. One night, there was a drug addict named Willie who was attending the service. He kind of fumbled his way in, and one of those evenings, he surrendered to the message. What Joe was preaching is exactly what Willie needed to hear. And you often wonder, does it really make a difference? Will will Willie be any different tomorrow with all of his addictions that that uh, he's been struggling with just because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah and he, he was transformed by him. Well, Willie's life began to change. They were walking along with him and, and saw enough in Willie that there truly had been a transformation. It wasn't just saying, I love Jesus so he could get a free meal. He actually had a heart and mind change. It changed so much as he's beginning to have progress. The safe house then sent Willie down to a Christian rehab program in Tampa, Florida. I love what was happening to Willie that they were willing to invest enough to send him down there. Several months later, Willie called Joe. Joe, when I got here, they asked me about my addictions and they began to help me through my withdrawals. And they helped me to grow in my relationship with Jesus, he said. Then they found out that I used to be a master chef before I became an alcoholic. And they made some calls and they found me a job at the Ritz-Carlton. Wow. In my rehab program, I learned that I should do everything with all my heart, just as if I was doing it for God alone. Now, I'm the head chef at the local Ritz-Carlton. I'd like to return to the safe house on a Wednesday night coming up and share my testimony with the others who are still struggling and wondering if Jesus can change your life. And Joe said, well, that would be great, Willie. I'd love for you to come back. And while you're here, Judy and I are willing to open our home so you'll have a place to stay. There was a long pause, and Willie said, thanks, Joe. Appreciate your hospitality, but that's unnecessary. I've had a fresh start. I've had a new life. When I come to Atlanta, there's only one place I'll be staying, and the room's already waiting for me. It's at the top floor of the (laughs) Ritz-Carlton. That's a true story. 
about a decade ago. I love it. When God changes your life, it's amazing what he will do when you trust him. You love the people around you. When you see people, do you see a drunk Willie or the head chef of a Ritz-Carlton in the penthouse suite? Do you see what God can do, and, and, and even in you, if you would just surrender and allow him to transform you in a way that gives him glory and gives you hope? With Jesus, not only do we have a great mercy, we have a new birth. Thirdly, with Jesus, we have a living hope. You notice in the text, a living hope. Not a hope of uncertainty. Well, I'm hoping. You know, some go through life merely moping about their circumstances. I hear it week in and week out from various people in the community. Uh, Some go through life groping for answers. Maybe this answer or that answer, and then they're left dissatisfied. Still others are simply coping the best they can to make it day by day. But when we have a great mercy and a new birth, listen to me, Jesus gives us a living hope. It's alive. It's active. You see things that you did not see before because you know Christ can change any situation. He can overcome any barrier. And he can even work through you to to give you confidence in the midst of uncertainty about your future. Hope is not an empty, uh, uh, positive thinking. As some say, well, just have hope. No, it's a durable optimism grounded in God's promises for eternity. Hope in our culture too often is wishful thinking. Biblical hope throughout all of Scripture is a certainty that God will accomplish His will perfectly. So you just have to trust Him. One theologian said, life without Christ is an endless hope, but without Him, a hopeless end. With Jesus, we can be optimistic not only about uh, the by and by, but the here and now. Do you have a living hope? Are you, are you enthused and, and excited and, and looking forward to what God may do, even in your situation right now where you don't know what tomorrow holds, but you do know who holds tomorrow? The fourth thing I don't want you to miss in the text is this. With Jesus, we have a risen Lord. That's why we gather today. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Easter says that you can put truth in a grave, but you cannot keep it there. People will question, oh, I don't know why you follow Jesus. I don't know. There's a story about all these things from the past. But for me, I understand the truth is put in the grave, but it is not there. Watchman Nee, a, a, a pastor of a, another culture, another generation, said our old history ends with the cross, but our new history begins with the resurrection. In the resurrection, our burdens are swallowed up by an empty tomb and our tomorrows or a bright glory of our risen Christ. Even Martin Luther, who led the Protestant Reformation, Certainly had difficult days, struggles in his life. And, and, and one evening, he was at a table just sitting there praying and wondering what he was going to do. And on the table, he began to just trace out two words with his fingertip as someone was observing him. Vivit, vivit. He lives. He lives. That was the one hope he had, no matter what the difficulty. Andrew Murray, great Uh, Great writer, I encourage you to read him. He said, a dead Christ, I must do everything for. 
A living Christ does everything for me. Eternal life happens because of what Christ has done for us. Because Christ lives, we can live abundantly today and eternally tomorrow. Our life with Christ is both forgiven and forever. We lift up our hearts. We focus on the Lord. We put on a smile. And we read with boldness, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I encourage you to read the rest of the, the, the book of 1 Peter. For someone who was struggling at the crucifixion, backpedaling from a servant girl and saying, I, I don't know him, to now the one who's boldly proclaiming, even in this, there's great mercy. There's new birth. There's a living hope. And there's a risen Lord. It was Harry Houdini. Perhaps you recall some stories of Harry Houdini, one of the great escape artists of, uh, of all time. In the early 1900s, he fascinated audiences. He would free himself from straitjackets, handcuffs, chains, and ropes. The more popular he became, the more daring he became. He escaped being buried alive, being immersed in water in a, in a coffin, a water-tortured chamber. Houdini apparently could escape everything. As he neared the end of his life, he told his wife that he would escape death and communicate with her on the other side. True story. You can look it up. As, he, as, he, uh, ended, or as life was ended, many thought, well, if anyone could escape death, he could. Then on Halloween, 1926 in Detroit, Michigan, Houdini did die. For a solid 10 years, his wife held on to the hope that her beloved husband would communicate with her and somehow escape death. On the 10th anniversary of his death in 1936, she gathered together the specialists, the seance leaders, and they broadcasted this all over the world on radio. One final opportunity for Harry to prove he could escape death and communicate. So after several uh, moments, numerous intense appeals to awaken Houdini from his destiny uh, or his death slumber. The host yelled, Houdini, are you here? We have waited, Houdini, for so long. Never have you proven what you promised. Then hearing nothing, the host turned to Houdini's wife and asked her what she would like to do. She replied, Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. It is finished. I will turn off the light. Houdini was the great escape artist that did not escape death. Jesus Christ said, I will be back. I will die for you and I will rise. And he did. John Stott said, we live and die. Christ died and lived. And unlike Houdini, Jesus promised his disciples on the third day he would rise from the, gra the grave. Over 500 people, eyewitnesses, saw him 
when he rose from the uh, dead. The tomb is empty. People could go in and see he is not there. Jesus' disciples were afraid at the crucifixion, but even denying him because of the threat in their lives. But now they're boldly proclaiming with confidence of seeing the Lord, putting their own lives at risk. But when you see a risen Lord, your life changes, your perspective changes. The church was birthed after the Sunday became the day of worship to celebrate the resurrection. Jesus has forever been worshipped as God since that day. He proved he was God by what he did. Peter Marshall said this, The stone was rolled away from the door of the tomb, not to permit Christ to come out, but so that you could go in and see he is not there. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Yes, do you agree that Jesus Christ has rose from the dead? This is who we worship. It was Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian in 37 AD, who wrote these words in his writings, Antiquities. He, Jesus, was the Christ. He appeared to them alive on the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other things concerning him. Here's someone as close to the event who was not a follower of Christ, just a Jewish historian who's saying, he rose from the dead. For some of you, there is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than then you are alive now. How many documents say that you are alive? How many documents and eyewitnesses and testimonies for 2,000 years have shown that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he is alive today? You know, for me, it's a very emotional and and intimate time to I know who Jesus is. I've given my life to him, and I've experienced so much, and I see it in his word. But for some, I just wanted to close this, this way. For some, it's still an intellectual thing. How do you prove it? You can't see it. Well, I can't see oxygen either, but I know it's there. I'm benefiting from it. How about you? There's a lot of things we can't see, but we can know with certainty. The Old Testament contains over 2,000 predictive prophecies which are very specific and very detailed. Some of them are about Jesus, such as the prophecies about a virgin conception, birth in Bethlehem, descendant of Abraham, miracles that he would perform, temple cleansing, Jewish rejection, ascension, crucified with thieves, side would be pierced, burial in rich man's tomb, a betrayal uh, by a disciple, uh, no bones broken. That's just a few of of the prophecies in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, was prophesied about the Messiah. In Jesus Christ, there are 456 identifiable prophecies that have been fulfilled. There's still some yet to be fulfilled. 456 identifiable prophecies. The chances of anyone fulfilling just 48 of these is a probability of 10 to the 157th power. That's 10 with 157 zeros behind it. Burrell's single law of chance states that anything beyond 10 to the 50th power is impossible. Jesus didn't just come and just edge to the side where it would be questionable. He blew impossibility away. This is why I believe in a God who still does miracles. This is why I believe there's a God who can still save the furthest person, the most hard-hearted person, because God is always the God who does the impossible.
Do you have hope today? Because God does the impossible even for you. That he has not abandoned you. He's not forsaken you. Jesus' historical evidence and prophecy fulfillment is impressive. But Jesus did not come to impress you. He came to transform you. He came to rescue you from your sin and eternal damnation so that you would have eternal life and joy forevermore with him. The question is not, is Jesus real or is he a, a, a myth? The evidence far is overwhelming that he is alive and active and, and, and he is moving. The, the question really is, are you willing to surrender to him for your salvation and find eternal joy. Our most incredible privilege and our immediate responsibility is to have our eternal destiny in being saved by him. Phillips Brooks said this, let every man and woman count himself immortal let him catch the revelation of Jesus in his resurrection. And let him not merely say, Christ is risen, but I shall rise with him. 